Hello and welcome to Le Monde Diplomatique's podcast for July 2011. My name is George Miller, and each month I bring you an in-depth interview with one of our contributors. This month sees the return of a guest from a previous programme, New York-based civil rights lawyer Chase Madoa, who appeared in our August 2010 podcast. In the July edition of Le Monde Diplomatique, Chase Madoa writes about how far we have drifted from the post-war vision of international law as an instrument for regulating and upholding a peaceful world order. In his analysis, international law has in fact become what he calls a supple instrument for war, as evinced most recently in the case of international intervention in Libya. I began by asking Chase about the view of international law that had emerged from the ruins of the Second World War. Well, intellectuals the world over have placed great faith in international law as a means to achieve a just peace. You see this after World War II with the founding of the United Nations, and there was a similar response to World War I with the enthusiasm for the League of Nations. The great dream is that international law will civilize global politics, that it will achieve a lawful peace that will criminalize war and bring war criminals to justice at some international tribunal. It's a coherent body of thought that makes a certain amount of sense. So why do you think something has gone wrong? What, and what, what, is, what is the nature of your, um, your beef with that, with that view, in essence? Well, the laws of war and international law more generally uh, is very much out of joint today, in profound disequilibrium. Partially this is because the world is in a state of permanent semi-war now with the glo- global hegemon, the United States, operating several low-level and, in fact, medium-level semi-wars at once with new technology, with new legal terminology. So many of the old categories and certainties and bracketing of war between periods of peace now seem obsolete. And we can see that international law, as it exists today, has been to a very large degree weaponized that international law is being used as a flexible and strategic instrument of war. And that, as one scholar very pungently put it, international law beats plowshares into swords as often as the reverse. And your thinking about this has been crystallized, or in the article you used the, the, the example of Libya and the recent intervention there as a sort of test case for, for what you're talking about. Perhaps you can tell me what the issues are you think that 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 raised in the context of this debate. That's right. Now, UN Security Council Resolution 1973 authorized NATO to impose a no-fly zone in Libya. And for many people the world over, this UN authorization was a kind of guarantee of the essential morality, justice, and efficacy of this act of war that if it's legal and in conformance with the UN Charter, then it must be okay. Now, of course, it takes more than mere legality to guarantee a just or benevolent policy or action. And we can all think of any number of actions that, though perfectly legal, would be foolish and destructive. To give a couple of very crass examples, it is perfectly legal to have unprotected sex with a house full of heroin addicts or to sell your house and give your life savings over to Sarah Palin's political action committee. Both actions would be completely legal, but I think very foolish. (laughs) 
And it, I mean, that's a very simple point that you make in the article, but I think it's quite a telling one, isn't it? That legality is not enough to justify any action. And, I, and so much of the debate in the media is focused on whether actions are legal. And so all these other questions of, of ethics and efficacy rather get, get pushed to the margins, don't they? At least, at least they do initially when the decision to go to war is, is being debated and, and being taken. Absolutely. It's a simple point that legality is enough, but it's one that's lost on a great many lawyers, I have to say, and it takes one to know one. Uh, and in the run-up to the war in Libya, and we should call it a war because it is a war, discussions of, of legality really dominated, which I think is unfortunate. International law should certainly be an important strand in any debate about going to war, but it should not dominate and crowd out discussions about morality, about prudence, about efficacy, and most of all, about consequences. As the philosopher Michael Walzer says in the latest issue of Foreign Affairs, the intervention seems to have prolonged rather than stopped the killing, which is neither charitable nor just. The motives of the U.S. and NATO were and are humanitarian but not sufficiently shaped by considerations of prudence and justice. So we should remember that legality and conformance with international law is never a guarantee of a good outcome and can even be congruent with some quite atrocious things. Let's think back to the economic sanctions against Iraq that were started by the first President Bush in eagerly maintained by Bill Clinton. These economic sanctions did immense damage to the civilian infrastructure of Iraq and brought tens of thousands of ordinary Iraqis to early deaths. And these sanctions were also completely legal, according to the UN, and were authorized by UN Security Council Resolution 661. It was really an unspeakable act of cruelty, but it was perfectly legal. Now, you point out that power imbalances have been built into the UN, really, from its, its inception. So, do you think there's a, there is a role for the UN in being part of a solution to the current state of affairs, or is it really part of the problem? Well, I, I think the, the UN can be part of the problem. I think it's important to, to, to realize that. I, I wish to distance myself from the paranoid American discourse, which sees the UN as a fiendish plot to limit and hem in U.S. prerogatives. I think nothing of the kind has ever happened or ever will happen. In fact, we see the opposite. Even when the U.S. brazenly violates international law, for instance, in the, the second Gulf War, the invasion of Iraq, the response of the UN was to come in trailing after like a camp follower, like a loyal helpmeet, and set up shop and help with the occupation, which happened at a you know, very tragic cost of life to UN employees who were you know, targeted by insurgents. Now, also in your sites, you have what you call the human rights industry. Um, and I, I guess one might characterize your reaction to them as, as being sort of almost constitutionally bound to to sit on their hands and not speak out over the question of the legality of, or, or, or the rightness, rather, of war. Um, wh where do you think they're going wrong in, in how they're currently configured? Well, I certainly don't wish to condemn uh, the 
big human rights groups because they do a great deal of very valuable work at great personal risk to many of their researchers, and lawyers even. But I think it's important that we all realize that their mission is very limited and circumscribed and that human rights doctrine has very little to offer on questions of whether or not to wage war, for instance, in Libya. And that uh, sometimes for the mainstream human rights groups get very lost in oh, their own good intentions and preening about the, the rightness of the, the responsibility to protect without thinking through consequences, so certainly without paying for any of the consequences. You see this in, in the case of Human Rights Watch, which very enthusiastically endorsed the war in Libya, and then uh, a couple days after that, that bombing campaign began, suggested that similar measures be taken in the Ivory Coast. On the other hand, Human Rights Watch has not weighed in very strongly on the second Iraq war, limited itself to a very demure year-after-the-fact statement that, well, the invasion of Iraq isn't, properly speaking, a humanitarian intervention. So Human Rights Watch's own stated policy is that they don't weigh in on Jusat Bellum matters, on the, the justness of whether or not to wage a war. And I think that's a very good policy for them. I do think, however, they should stick to it, and I don't think they have been sticking to that policy. But if, if they do stick to it, then then their their freedom of maneuver is well is is circumscribed. Really, they're they're, they're accepting the circumscription of their their ability to to speak out on on significant matters which do have human rights implications further down the line, aren't they? Yes, they certainly are. Uh, but I, I I think that you know all nonprofit institutions and all institutions have limited missions mm. and can perhaps proceed best if they recognize those limits. I, I think that the where there's a real need for speaking out against the war is you know outside of the professional human rights universe. Uh, I think it's a fundamentally political issue that should not be left to the elite lawyers and technocrats at Human Rights Watch and at Amnesty, for mm. example, in spite of all the great work that they do. There, you know, there's a growing uh, critique of the human rights industry without condemning it, mind you, but pointing out its limits. And uh, you know, practitioners of this include the Italian philosopher Danilo Zolo, the French activist and philosopher Régis Debray, and uh, an American-China expert named James Peck, who just wrote a terrific book called Ideal Illusions, How the U.S. Government Co-opted Human Rights. And, of course, we all remember the anti-Iraq demonstrations, which I suppose are exactly the kind of non-technocratic, popular kind of reaction to war. And then we also remember how ineffectual they were and how, how very much the debate was focused on technicalities and, and legal issues, wasn't it? Yes. And uh, it's easy to see why the anti-war movement in Britain, where it was quite strong, and in the U.S., where it was fairly weak, latched on to the legality, because this supplied a ready-made language and mode of criticizing a war that has turned out so terribly, and it was brazenly illegal. But it's important also not to get too hung up in the issue of law and talk about the horrible consequences most of all to Iraqis, 
but also to British people and American people themselves. I mean, this has inspired terrorist blowback in Great Britain, a great cost to British people, and it's also seen an erosion of U.S. power. I think it would be good if we in the anti-war community learned to speak the language of interest as mm. well as the language of law. I mean, I, I think that was that was the broad point that I took from your article, Chase. That that linguistically, culturally, um, we are sort of invested in this in this system in which law is seen as the paramount arbiter, and there isn't much space for um, giving voice to other sorts of debate in the way that things are currently configured. That's absolutely correct, and I think it's it's important to see that international law is less a regulator of power politics than really a secretion of global power politics. And really, it's always been like this. Take, for example, Hugo Grotius, born 1583, often held up as one of the august founders of modern international law. His book, The Rights of War and Peace, is really one of the cornerstones, The Laws of War. But Grotius was known in his own time, by his Dutch name, which is the rather more gutturally pronounced Hugh de Groot. And Hugh de Groot was less a disinterested philosopher than a kind of picaresque shyster, an itinerant lawyer whose first published legal work was a defense of the prerogatives of, of Dutch privateers in the East Indies, really an apologia for great power piracy. And this Hugh de Groot wound up uh, in Paris serving as Sweden's ambassador to France, and the Swedish king, Gustavus Adolphus, was very happy to make full use of Grotius's legal expertise as Gustavus Adolphus conquered, annexed, and laid waste to great swaths of Germany in the Thirty Years' War. And throughout the Thirty Years' War, King Gustavus Adolphus used his copy of Grotius's Rights of War and Peace as a pillow to sleep on comfortably at night. A very apt metaphor, I think, for the true function of international law and world politics. Chase Madara. You can read his article, License for War in Libya, in the July issue of Le Monde Diplomatique. Do also visit Le Monde Diplomatique's website at mondediplo.com. There, subscribers can read the current issue of the paper and access a complete archive, as well as explore the Diplomatic Channels section, which offers articles, blogs, maps, images, and a podcast archive. I hope you'll join me again next month for another in-depth interview with one of our contributors. And until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.